without question, there has never been a teacher greater than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Even were he not to have ever spoken a word, he is the word. The word that was with God. The word that is God. Eternally. And even in his coming, God was saying much. The letter to the Hebrews begins like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There was much said. There was much taught. Just in the coming of Jesus Christ. In times of old, God had spoken through the prophets. He had taught. He had spoken. He had instructed. But all those words pointed forward to him. So that in his coming, in these last days, it's through his son that he spoke. So that if you want to know what God is like, you look at the son. You know what the king and the kingdom are like? You look at the son. The way of life and blessing, look at the son. Salvation, look at the son. Everything that we could ever possibly need to know in this life comes in the son. But he didn't remain silent. He spoke. Preaching the gospel. Repent. Believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he didn't preach the way that other people preached. He talked with authority of his own. These other folks always pointing to someone else, some scribe, some teacher of the law. Always adding their amen to the back of the stuff that they had said. But it was only Jesus that would come and say, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, because I'm truth. Every word that I speak is truth. Every step that I take is truth. You will never learn anything in all the universe like what you will learn from watching and listening to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, sitting at his feet and doing the will of his Father. And so we come this morning in Mark's gospel to the longest passage of teaching text within his work, apart from chapter 13 where Jesus talks and instructs about the end of the age. This is the longest singular portion of Jesus' teaching that you'll find in Mark's gospel. And so go ahead and stand to your feet, please, as we read together from Mark's gospel. We are now in the fourth chapter. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So they got in a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea of the land. On the land, excuse me. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. 
Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell on good soil, produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my beautiful Savior? And would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. The text began, and he began to teach beside the sea. Matthew says it like this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. What same day? The same day as what? The same day that Jesus' mother and brothers traveled 20 miles to come and force him to come home because he was crazy. The same day that Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? The same day that he looked at those that were seated around his feet and said, here, these these are my mother. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. Those who are with me and do the will of my Father. It's that same day. And now, depending on your understanding of Matthew's gospel, if you really dig in and pay attention, this day may well have began all the way back with Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields as they grabbed heads of grain. If you really dig in, that's Sabbath. That Sabbath day where Jesus and his disciples were walking and they were, they were grabbing heads of grain. And you remember that conflict that they had there. And then as he went in and he healed the man with the withered hand. You remember that? And then as he went away and he continued to teach and he continued to heal and confront these people. As he warned the Pharisees about the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then as his family came, this may have been just the longest Sabbath in the history of Sabbaths. I'm not going to fight you over it. Maybe I'm wrong. When I first heard it, I thought, surely not. But if you really dig in and listen to the language, this may well have been a very, very busy day in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Much conflict, much instruction. But we do know for certain that it is that same day that he refused to be diverted from his father's mission, even to go out and visit with his earthly family. That he offered to them the same thing that he offered to those that sat around his feet. Look, whatever relationship we have, it dies at death. Unless... Unless you trust in me, unless you turn in repentance and faith and trust in me as the only way to the Father, then, then, you will not only gain an eternal relationship with me, but behold, your brothers, your sisters, a new spiritual family, the likes of which you could have never imagined, something so much deeper and so much greater and so much grander. And he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into the boat and he sat in it in the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So as, again, as was Jesus' practice, he withdrew. He pulled back. He went out to the sea. 
to allow himself the space that he needed to minister to these people and the ability to, to teach these people. And there was a boat there. You may recall all the way back in chapter 3 that Jesus had told his disciples to prepare just for such a day as this. He had told them, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had disease pressed around him to touch him. So there was the boat there, and the boat was ready. And he sits in it like a floating pulpit. He sits down in it, and he pushes out a ways into the water while the people are there on the shore. And so I, I like to imagine that this was happening there in Capernaum near Peter's house. And if so, I've seen this shore. And it's not like the sandy shores on the Texas Gulf Coast. This, it's, it's a rocky, it's a black, rocky soil. And so I'm, I'm picturing the people as they're standing there, perhaps seated there, and Jesus pushes out. And you know the way that the water would have amplified his voice. It would, have, it would have served to just reverberate his voice. And then there's mountains all around this place. God created an amphitheater. God, God created this scene for this day, for this moment. There would be no headphones. There would be no speakers. God created a natural amphitheater so that his son, Jesus Christ, could get in a boat and preach and all those that wanted to hear could hear. If you don't stand in awe of that, dear friends, check yourself. So Jesus is there and he's teaching. His voice is it's going out to all the people. Verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Parables. This is, so this is a, it's a tremendous shift here that we see. He's teaching them in parables. See, previous to this point, Jesus had been preaching in a very straightforward fashion. He would say, here is the truth, and here's how you should respond. You've heard it said, to love your neighbor but to hate your enemy. And I say, no. You're to bless your enemies. You need to take great care. If you see that someone has something against you, you come to the altar, and you're there to offer a gift, and you know that your brother has something against you. Here's how you react. You leave it, and you go to your brother. Very straightforward. Previous to this point, you won't find parables. Now, again, Mark doesn't cover a whole lot of Jesus' teaching, but even going to Matthew and Luke, what you'll find with the possible exception of the wise man building his house upon the rock that you find in Matthew 6 and Luke 7, with the exception of that, you're not going to find parables previous to this point. And yet now there's this shift. And from this point, public teaching would always be in parables. He says this in Mark 4, 33 through 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. And it's the parables that we know Jesus by, right? When you ask people about Jesus' teaching, our minds and our hearts, they always go to the parables. There's 40 of them about. You'll find them all in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't, John doesn't include any of them, but that's, that's what we know Jesus for. We know his parables. We love his parables. They offer themselves well to the teaching of our children. And, and they offer themselves well to, to paintings and pictures and to murals. And so we love Jesus' parables, but what is a parable? parable? Parable simply means that which is laid beside something else. That's in parallel. It's, it's that which is laid beside something else, specifically for the sake of bringing out a truth, of comparison. It's taking common, everyday things that we understand in order to ferret out some deep truth that may not otherwise be known. That's what a parable is. They're used for focusing your mind on one singular truth within this story. And that makes them different than allegory. You see, in an allegory, every, it's a story in which every single thing, every single event stands for something. 
There could be multiple truths that we're gathering from this, and it's, the stories just require so much, so much depth of understanding, every single piece standing for something else. That puts them in, in contrast with parables in which there is one main truth. Jesus is, is elevating one main truth for his people in the teaching of these parables, and all the pieces, all the subjects, all the events, they highlight that truth. They bring that truth on display. And now preachers and teachers and Bible scholars, they can get themselves into trouble whenever they try to take parables and turn them into allegories. They can take the parables that God has given us to show us one main truth, and then they take the, the parable of the mustard seed. And they say, well, well, the mustard seed is Israel, and the tree is America, and the, and the birds are the, that's, that's President Bush, and then this, this nest over here, that's Iraq, and then this over here. They work themselves in all kinds of knots trying to explain with every single piece when Jesus says, no, here's a truth. The story is meant to tell you this truth. And they come to some really bad theology. So that's what we're going to find as we walk through these parables together in the weeks to come. That the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the master teaching, he's putting on display for you a magnificent truth. He's illuminating you to a magnificent truth. But I would urge you, don't take it further than he does. C.H. Dodd defines it like this. A parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or its strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. It's active listening. It's wrestling. It starts a fire within your brain that keeps on going long after the parable stops so that you continue to mull over it, oftentimes through great effort. You continue to mull over it, and then that thought becomes your own thought. It truly becomes yours because you've wrestled with this truth. You've seen this picture with your own eyes and in your heart and your mind. Long after the teacher has stopped speaking, your own heart then continues to teach you and it carries on after this. Now, parables weren't unique to Jesus. Many people in the ancient Near East, they taught in parables. The Pharisees, the scribes, they often highlighted truths within the Old Testament with the use of parables. But again, Jesus isn't a teacher like the scribes and the Pharisees. While all they could do was highlight God's teaching in the law, Jesus is God. Every word that he uttered was a new revelation. He was bringing the truth, he was bringing to, to light new truths that had never been heard. Truly I say to you, the kingdom of God is like, because they couldn't understand what the kingdom of God is like. He was having to show them for the first time how the kingdom of God could be seemingly imperceptible, could seemingly be being run roughshod over by the enemy. He was showing them the kingdom of God is nothing like you could have imagined. So he was using these parables to highlight this for him, to show him not like the other people did. He wasn't just referring back to the word of another. He wasn't just shining a spotlight on somebody else's teaching. It was his teaching. It was his word as the word. That's the way that he's using these parables. The text continues. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said... He who has ears, let him hear. So God willing, 
next week we will truly unpack the, so, the, the parable of the sower, or what it should be called, the parable of the soils. Today I want to focus on the why. I'm going to focus on this last sentence that Jesus gives us here. I want to focus on why. What is the purpose in the parables? We're fixing to go into this series of, of in, in accordance with Mark's gospel, and this series of studying the parables, and we need to know why. Why did, why did Jesus choose to preach in this way? You see in verse 9, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. What a strange statement. So everybody has ears. We know that if somebody showed up without a ear, Jesus could have healed them. He did that in the garden, didn't he? Here, you look like you're lacking ears. May you have them now. And we know that he could take people whose ears didn't work, and he could have made their ears work. So what a strange statement here. He who has ears, let him hear. And by the way, the dudes that didn't have ears and didn't hear couldn't hear him say it anyway. So clearly there's something more here than just our ear canals receiving sound waves and then interpreting them and sending them onto their brain. So this has something more to do than something more than just the physiological act of hearing, of sound. It's about comprehending. It's about understanding. And clearly there's an indication here that some people in the group could do it and some people couldn't. You'll notice that he doesn't say, hey everybody, listen up. He says, you who have ears, listen to what I'm about to say to you. May you hear what I'm about to preach to you. So clearly there's going to be some people within this group that they just can't do it. No more than a man without ears can't, can cause himself to hear. There's some dividing line amongst the people here. We see this, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, they asked him about the parables. Outsiders and insiders, remember? When he's alone, the disciples and the twelve, and they're there. Those that had sat around his feet and those that were doing the will of the Father. And so they asked him a question. It's a pretty straightforward question. Matthew says that he asked, why do you speak to them in parables? Surely they were thinking, Jesus, why don't you just keep teaching the way you're teaching? Tell them the truth. Tell them how to obey the truth. Tell them the truth and then tell them how to respond. Tell them the truth and then tell them what to go do. Why are you teaching them these parables? Because all you're doing is confusing them more. The people that showed up that kind of seemed to be getting it maybe, or the people that maybe they were on the outside, but, but maybe they were this close, now whatever they thought they knew, they don't even know that anymore. You're confusing them, Jesus. You're not making anything clear for these people. You're preaching to them in parables, and they're walking away more confused than when they came to you in the first place. Because parables, without an explanation, they're just riddles. We forget that because we've grown up learning these parables. We've grown up with the full revelation of God's Word. Then when we came to the point of time that God had ordained from all creation, the Holy Spirit filled our heart and illuminated us to what these meant. But these parables, these were common everyday stories. These people could have related to these stories. Unless there was somebody there to truly teach them, they were going to struggle greatly. Many of them were going to walk away more confused than they were in the first place. Think about the, perhaps the greatest of Old Testament parables, one that so many of us are familiar with, the story of King David. You remember that he had lusted after a woman named Bathsheba. He had taken her. He had impregnated her. He tried to cover this up in some way, and when he failed at that, what did he do? Conspired to take the life of her husband. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him, and he says, King David, I need to tell you a story. The story, of course, was of two men. 
One man was rich. He had many flocks. He had many animals. One man was poor. He had one lamb, but he loved that lamb. Loved him desperately. Well, a friend came to visit the rich man. And rather than going out amongst his own flocks and taking one of his own sheep or one of his own livestock to entertain his guest, he went and took the poor man's. Killed and ate him. King David was infuriated. Who is this man? You must bring him here. Something like this can't stand in my kingdom. What did Nathan tell him? You the man. David, you are that man. And in an instant, it all made sense. You see, apart from Nathan's revealing work, apart from God speaking through the prophet to King David, it was just a really sad story. But then with a word from God, everything became clear. Had Nathan chosen not to speak, had God not used Nathan in this way, David would have never gotten it. And because of the illuminating work of God as he speaks through his prophet to this man, he understands. So again, this is the question they're asking. Why? Why would you do this then, Jesus? Why do you speak in parables out there and then you call us aside and you teach us? Why do, you, why do you do it in this way? And so he answers them, verse 11. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those on the outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, church, there's many preachers that they'll tell you that the reason that Jesus began to speak in parables because he wanted to make sure that everybody had a chance to understand is if two years into Jesus' ministry, he looked around and he thought, I'm not gaining much traction here. I don't think these people get it. I'm going to try a new tactic here. I'm going to tickle their ears with some stories. I'm really going to engage them. Some old razzle-dazzle. And then he just blows them away by these parables. He's trying to win these other people over to him. And so what you'll find as a result of that is that many of these same preachers, they believe that that's the pattern for their preaching. And so they'll try to come up with their own parables. Or perhaps their sermons will just be filled with stories and jokes and all this because the straightforward word of God, you can't possibly reach people with that. Not today, not today. It's entertainment. You've got to entertain them. You've got to tell them stories. You've got to make them laugh. Nobody shows up just to hear the word of God just exposed for them. May I remind you that after Jesus there weren't parables? Paul didn't teach in parables. He wasn't writing parables. Peter wasn't making up his own parables. Now, certainly there's use for illustrations. You've got to meet people where they're at. You've got to help connect the dots and, and, and help them to see the truth that God is exposing to them in this. But dear friends, I'm not your monkey, and I don't come up here to dance. God's Word does the teaching, but you'll see these men that they believe. That's the pattern for them then. It's got to be stories. It's got to be entertainment. They completely miss why it is that Jesus is doing what he's doing. So why, though? Why? Listen to the answer again, verse 11. And he said to them, To you has been given secrets of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is a parable, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. The disciples asked a straightforward question, why do you do this? And he says, because they're outsiders. These people that thought they were insiders, they're outsiders. Because they did not recognize me as the Son of God and the only way to eternal life. They did not sit at my feet. They did not do the will of my Father. They are outsiders. And I'm concealing from them the truth. I'm hiding the truth. 
lest they turn, repent, and be saved. This is yet another culling, separating the insiders from the outsiders, the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. You don't like that answer, do you? I didn't say it. Jesus did. The idea that Jesus would intentionally hide, lest these people turn and repent and be forgiven and be saved, Look at the the verse that he quoted there. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. In the sixth chapter, it's a very familiar scene to us. Isaiah finds himself there before the throne of God, and the train of his robe fills just the the entire temple, and he, he, he hears the seraphim as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory, and he knows I'm in trouble. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips from an unclean people, and I've seen God's face. I cannot be here. I cannot stand. You remember what happens as the seraphim takes those blistering coals and touches it to his lips and just sears his lips? Now you're ready. Cleanses his sin and prepares to send him out. And what is his response then? Here I am. Send me. So he's going to go out with a message. Because Israel has not acted right. They've rebelled against God. They've rejected his prophets. They have, they have turned from his law. They have abused the widow and the orphan. They've not properly observed the Sabbath. And so they stand there in the shadow of the Assyrians coming to take them off into exile. And then the Babylonians coming to take the people of Judah off into exile. So he says, Isaiah, I'm going to send you out with a message to this people that have rebelled against me. What's that message? Is the message a plea that they would please turn and worship God? Is the message one last Hail Mary? Look, the Assyrians are coming. I'm going to give you one more chance. Please, 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 please just worship me. Here's what he says. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. The Lord said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Dear friends, this was a message of judgment. God had judged Israel and he found her lacking despite all his blessings. The law, the prophets, the revelation, the sacrificial system, all the things that God had given them. You see, these people, they weren't rebellious because they didn't know the law. They weren't disobedient because they didn't know what obedience was meant to look like. They weren't acting badly because nobody had warned them that acting badly was going to lead to destruction. They were just hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. The problem wasn't that somebody hadn't come and spoke to them the straightforward truth. It's that they despised God. They despised his word. So God had judged He had found them lacking, and now he's saying, you go with this message, and it's going to seal their fate. It's going to make certain that when the end comes, they've got no grounds to stand on to accuse me of anything. I am God, and I find you guilty. Nobody signs up for that job. Isaiah wasn't thrilled about what God was calling him to do. So he asked him, God, how long do I have to do this job? Oh, Lord, how long? And the Lord said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and a house without people, 
and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. How long do I have to do this, Lord? Until the land lays waste. Till the people have been dragged away. But do you hear that word, the remnant? God always, always, always holds fast to a small but faithful remnant. There are those that will be mine. There are those that will be saved. You see, Isaiah didn't just have a message of judgment. He had a message of hope. A message of hope for the people. But only those that were his were going to hear the hope. The rest were going to say, who are you to tell me that I am due destruction? Who are you to tell me that I have offended the living God? Don't you know who my father is, my grandfather is? Don't you know from what tribe I hail? Don't you know where I belong? I'm an insider. And he says, no. You're on the outside. But for those on the inside, they hear that message of hope. They will endure the suffering. They will endure the exile. They will endure it all because they know the message of hope. They know that God is not completely and utterly wiping them out. That he will continue in his work and his plan of salvation. I pray that you see this because this is what, this is, this is the story here that we find Jesus referring to. This is the scripture that Jesus quotes. Because for two years, Jesus has been teaching them in a very straightforward way. Repent, believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. And they hardened themselves. Despite all the testimony, the prophet and the law and the sacrifices, all pointing forward to him. And then in his birth, the angels and the shepherds, the stars in the sky, all attesting, this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is the way of salvation. God has spoke. After centuries of silence, God has spoken. Listen, my son, whom I love. And despite the miracles and the teaching and the healing and the encounters with the demons, what they decide? He's crazy or he's a liar or perhaps he's working under the power of Satan himself. So he says, I judge you now and I speak to you in these parables. It's only those that sit at my feet, only those that are on the inside, not because of anything that they have done, but because of the working of my Father, because he has called them. Because of that, they will sit here and they will hear these truths. I will speak to them the truth. I will connect the dots for them. They won't walk away more confused than when they came. They will be enlightened. They will see more as a result of this. I will call them into these places, and they will hear the secret and hidden wisdom of God. Because they're mine. But for the rest of you, it will only be in parables, and you will never understand. And church, you need to understand that these that were on the inside, of course, it wasn't because they were the smartest. It wasn't because they were the most faithful. It wasn't because they'd done anything to earn this. We, we remember the scene where Peter is confessing Jesus as, as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And remember what Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Men can't open their own eyes. See, God, God hadn't blinded us. What Scripture tells us, it's the God of this age that has blinded our minds. This darkened our hearts to the beauty, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And scripture also tells us that we love the darkness, so we don't come to the light. That we love the darkness and we hide in the darkness. 
So much so that when somebody comes through with the light, we despise it. We would seek to destroy the light. So it's only by working outside of ourselves that our eyes may open, that we would come to the light. It's got to be one outside of ourselves, and that's the work of God as he calls, as he summons, as he opens our eyes and he opens our ears. He takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. We can see and believe, and that's what's happening here. People didn't figure it out. These weren't educated men. These weren't the, 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 the folks with a master's or a doctorate in the parables. It was because they heard the voice of their Savior, Jesus Christ. They sat at his feet. They heard his teaching as he connected the dots. So as Jesus spoke to show his judgment upon these people, these very same parables would work to further show these people the kingdom of heaven. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. In a few weeks when, when Kyle comes and he preaches to you, the, the, the last sentence in his text is this. For the one who has, more will be given. For the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That through one parable, those that are of the faith, their faith will be increased. Their faith will grow. Their understanding will increase. But for those that are in doubt, for those that have rejected Jesus Christ, for those that refuse to follow after him, for those that refuse to repent and trust, even what they think they understand will be darkened. They're going to walk away more confused than ever before by these very same parables. Now, sure, there were certain times when the Pharisees were going to understand intellectually what these parables meant. I'm not saying that you can't figure it out if you sit here and listen to the words of Jesus. There was times when Jesus was talking to them about the the wicked tenants, and how they had abused and, and rejected the call of the master of the land, and they had killed his son, Matthew 21, 43 through 46. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. See, this wasn't merely just some assent to an intellectual truth. They understood who he was talking about. They understood that it was him. They understood that they were, he was calling them to be the ones that the kingdom of God was going to be taken from. They weren't going to receive anything in the kingdom of God. The problem was the response of their heart. Instead of being pierced to the heart, instead of turning and repenting and believing, what did they do? They determined all the more that he had to be destroyed. That he had to be killed. You see, today, Jesus isn't walking around and calling individual believers into rooms physically to teach them this. We have his word here, right? When you go to buy a Bible at the store, they don't check your Christian card. Whoa, whoa, whoa this is secret. This is secret. You can't find this out. Tell me the gospel. Recite the books of the Bible. Show me the secret handshake. Draw fish in the dirt. They'll let just anybody have this book. And you could read his words and his explanations of the parables, and they will mean nothing, nothing, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart, giving you spiritual eyes that see, spiritual ears that hear, the ability to love and react and respond to the teaching of your glorious Savior. Otherwise, they're just cute stories. While we may intellectually grasp the truth that Jesus is telling, no hope of ever responding to it, no hope of being changed, no hope of following after the direction that our master is leading in this. And so that's my prayer for us this morning.
my hope and our prayer, my prayer for us this morning is that as we, as we walk through these parables together, these beautiful teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, rather than getting caught up on the fact that there are many who will perish, there are many who will hear these teachings and only serve to be hardened as a result of those, that we would rejoice in knowing that apart from the working of His Holy Spirit, there too go I. It's not just because I've heard these since childhood. It's not just because I had my little, my little Bible story, uh, uh, what's it, Bible story, Bible book when I was a little boy, a little hardback book. It's because of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And that I would sing songs of praise to the God who came to me in my blindness and in my deafness. And he caused me to see and he caused me to hear and he caused me to love and he caused me to believe. So as I sing songs of praise about the glories of heaven and the promises of this life for those that follow after his son, Jesus Christ. As I sing those songs of praise, I'll be reminded with every single word, I did nothing. I despised him. I hated him. I fleed from him. I rebelled against him. And in the middle of all that, he did everything to call me to himself. That even the words that I sing as an act of worship, they come from him. The ability to believe, the ability to see, the ability to hear, I owe it all to you. Even my faith is a gift from you. Church, I, there's some people here, right? You people that are at home, you've noticed there's some people here. We're, we're preparing, right? We, as we talked about, we're going to do some, we're going to do some trials to figure out spacing and capacities and all this, and we're going to increase as we, as we go along. I want to express to you in this room, and I want to express to the people at home that as we gather back together as the corporate body, little by little, more, more, more by more, just continue to come together and, and serve together and love on each other and to worship the living God. May we never lose sight of the fact that every single thing we do as the body of Christ is done in his authority and in his power. It's all a blessed gift of him. That when this room was empty, God wasn't in heaven somehow lacking sobbing do they still love me that he is the one that is worthy of all praise and he has put the praise in your lips and may we never for one second forget that believing that he is seated on seated on his throne waiting for popular opinion waiting to find out what the consensus is if for those on the outside, they're never going to get it. But for those on the inside, those that are his, those that have been filled with his spirit, he will use you to truly praise. He will use you to be glorified. He will use you in ways you couldn't possibly imagine. We would just get out of the way and be used. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in the quiet places. That by the work of your spirit, you have not taken away that little bit we understood, but 
you've given us more. That your son, Jesus Christ, is beautiful. He is the thing we cherish and delight in amongst all creation, Father, all the universe, all that is within this earth, that we worship the one through whom all this was created, that we see him as beautiful and glorious and wonderful, and that we didn't come to that conclusion on our own. We know that it was all from you. So, Father, as we continue to worship this morning, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, help us to truly worship in spirit and in truth. Father, if there's one here this morning, gathering in this room or gathering online, Father, that they're still fighting. They're not cursing your name. They don't hate you. They're just trying to earn their way back to you. They're trying to prove themselves as worthy. Father, would you bring them to the end of themselves? Cause them to cry out to your son, Jesus Christ, and be saved. Father, it's in your son's precious name we pray. 